Well, before we uh, rise for the reading of the Old Testament, just a few um, comments about our text. Uh, last week, uh, we read Genesis 22, one of the best-known uh, stories in the Bible, where Abraham is willing to sacrifice his son, and he binds him for that sacrifice. And it is, as we saw, something of the climax of this promise to Abraham that he would have a seed, that he would have an offspring, a covenantal climax of the whole Abraham story. As we turn today to Genesis 23, uh, it seems like things have calmed down a good deal. <laughs> a good deal. Um, a, a least well-known story in the book of Genesis. Um, it is the story of Sarah's death, or more precisely, of her burial. Um, it doesn't seem near as important or significant as Genesis 22. And yet Moses lavishes quite a bit of care and attention on this story. He spends a lot of time. And the story is really driven by a dialogue between Abraham and the people of the land, the Hittites, among whom he dwells. Three times Abraham speaks. Three times he is answered. Moses could have told everything we need to know, or rather, every, all the information of this chapter in one sentence. He could have said, Then Sarah died at the age of 127 and was buried in a cave Abraham bought from Ephraim for 400 shekels. But he gives us a lot more. And so, what God wants us to know about this text is really within this dialogue. And let me, as I often want to do, give you just, see, this is my color-coded copy of the text, give you just a few of the key words that I hope you'll hear and ring as we run through this dialogue. First, it's framed by the land of Canaan and the people of the land. And especially important is Abraham's desire for a possession, property, which he owns. That will be repeated four times. In every one of the six dialogue blocks, someone says, bury my dead or bury your dead. And so the point of this sermon, the classic phrase, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you, is that Abraham's seed will, in the future, possess the gate of his enemies. But Abraham confesses and acknowledges that he will not possess God's promises this side of the grave. So this is God's holy word for us today. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, 
which he owns, it is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites. And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land and said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will hear me, I give the price of the field, accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, and in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Uh, join me now in our prayer for illumination. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word, we praise you for revealing Christ by promise and shadow in these pages. Help us to understand these words for thy name's sake. Amen. Our New Testament lesson this morning comes to us from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. You can find it on page 987 if you are using your pew Bible. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. 
Please join me uh, in the prayer of illumination printed in your bulletin. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament and ask you to give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. Please be seated. This chapter of scripture is driven forward by its dialogue. The narrator has very little to say at the opening. Uh, he informs us of Sarah's death and Abraham's grief. And in closing, he recounts the details of the transaction. And indeed, this closing paragraph um, reads like a legal document. It could be a deed. It's a land deed certifying Abraham's purchase of the field of Ephron in Machpelah. So that's, that's the narrative structure on which we have this, this scene play out that's driven uh, by dialogue. And we have three exchanges of dialogue. It's a negotiation between Abraham and the Hittite people of the land. And there are a couple of different ways you could read this negotiation. I never really had given it any thought before uh, preparing this sermon, and we'll, we'll come back to that in a moment. But as I studied this text, I, I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if someone, uh, generally I don't like to dramatize scripture, but, but you could have a, a scene in a play, right? Two actors, multiple actors on stage, and, and I'm not an actor, and I don't play one on TV, but I wanted us just to, to listen to this dialogue before we get started. I'll try to do my Abraham voice and my Hittite voice, but it's not very good. <clears throat> I'm a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me, listen, entreat for me, Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It's at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me. In your presence as property for a burying place. This is my Ephron voice. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field. I give you the cave in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me. That I may bury my dead there. My Lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is it between you and me? Bury your dead. The first time I heard this dialogue, I thought of it kind of in terms of a, a very overly polite and formulaic uh, marketplace negotiation. No one wants to actually say that they want to buy or name the price. You know, you don't talk about money in polite company. Um, if you've ever experienced or seen like the idea of a, of a Middle Eastern bazaar, right, where you're trading back and forth and having this intense negotiation. Um, 
And so it, it was interesting in that way, but I never thought it really had any meaning or significance. Why are we getting all of this information? Moses isn't just entertaining us. This isn't sociology. He's not trying to show us how Middle Easterners uh, bought land. But it is, I think, a tense negotiation. There are two different views at play here. There's a relationship between Abraham and the people of the land, as we are reminded. He wants to own land for the first time in his long life. Since he's left his homeland, at least. He wants to own land. And this ownership of land will change his status in the land. It will change his relationship with these neighbors. Notice how he introduces himself in that first dialogue. I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. I'm a stranger. Notice what he asks for. Give me property. Give me a possession among you. Abraham sort of softens uh, this request, which again is, is, is momentous in its significance. Think again of the founding of our nation, right? Who voted in our country? Landowners, right? If you don't own land, you don't have a, a vote. You don't sit in the gate of the city, judging, ruling. So Abraham's request is a big one, and he softens a little bit. Uh, you could say that he adds like a little rider, a little zoning rider upon it, only for the purpose of burying my dead. I want to own land, but just for this one purpose. And that really brings to mind that in every block of dialogue here, we have this phrase, bury my dead, bury your dead. It's, it's Abraham's dead wife. This sort of uh, offends some of our understanding, the way we use language today, but Sarah belongs to Abraham. She's not his property per se, but she is his wife, his possession. Not as a thing to be bought or sold, but as a person. Her body is yet cherished by him. He mourns her. He weeps for her. And we are told, pointedly, at the opening of this story, that Sarah lived 127 years. It is emphatic. It's a very interesting... You can have Luke explain it to you. It's a very interesting sentence in Hebrew. It reads like this, and it emphasizes life. It reads like this. And it happened that Sarah lived... 100 years, 20 years, 7 years, the years Sarah lived. The emphasis and bookend is Sarah's life. Now, think back. Do a little math. Isaac was born when she was 91. So he's now about 36 years old. Since chapter 22, a few verses before on the previous page, when Isaac was probably a young lad, was a young lad, it's about 20 or 25 years. Remember, when Abraham offered Isaac, the angel of the Lord appeared and confirmed the promise. And one of the things that he expanded the promise, he said, your seed, again, he's talking about Isaac and the offspring, your seed will possess the gate of his enemies. This is a promise of, of military victory, of conquering you know how moms are. God, you said my boy would be a great conqueror. And here we are, the next scene, she's dead. We know nothing else from the story of Scripture, of Sarah and Isaac's relationship. But you can guess that when she died, she might have been hoping that she would have gotten a little bit more of possession of this promise 
Though Abraham was warned, remember in the first promise back in Genesis 15, that his seed would be afflicted for 400 years in a foreign land. It's kind of a rough promise from God, right? Like your, your offspring will have 400 years of slavery, give or take. Could any mom not have hoped in her promised child, the child of laughter, that Isaac would have had more success? All we know is that when she does die, Abraham doesn't even have a place to bury her. And so he has to go hat in hand, bowing and scraping the dirt before his enemies, the Hittites, to seek to buy a cave in which to bury her. As we'll find out later, right? It's kind of buried in this text. But all these men, this dialogue is taking place in the gate of the enemies. In the last chapter, Sarah was told, or Abraham was told that his offspring would possess, own, occupy the gate of his enemies. And so this this episode coming back to back with Genesis 22 is a stark reminder that none of those promises have been fulfilled yet. And note how the Hittites respond to him. It seems polite and respectful. They call him a lord, a prince of God. And they say, none of us will withhold our grave. We'll give you whatever you want, right? Bury your dead. They repeat it twice. But as we know, when making a property transaction, the fine print matters. Some of you have ever been lucky enough to buy a house. You sign, 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 right? Very pointedly, they say, bury your dead in the finest of our tombs. You own your dead, we own the tomb. It's kind of like a rental. Like, you couldn't really rent a gravesite, right? Like, who's going to pay the rental payments after you're gone? The whole point of burying someone is that you need to own the thing. So they're telling him, okay, we understand that you're grieving your wife, but no property is going to change hands here today. And second, they say, literally, a man among us will not withhold his tomb from burying your dead. And it's always very easy to say, like, well, someone will do that, right? <laughs> it's the, the universal, like, no one's going to tell you not to. They don't say what they're going to give him. There's no clear offer. And in fact, the property request is dodged or rebuffed. So Abraham is shrewd. He's a wise negotiator. And he gets up. They're, they're having this conversation in a seated uh, posture. And he stands up and he bows before them. He thanks them. Because he's gotten something from them. And he's going to build off this thing that they have given him. They've offered him a part of what he asked for. Burial rights. But they didn't offer possession ownership. So he uses their offer, he leverages what they've offered. If you're willing that I should bury my dead, and then he particularizes it. Don't tell me about what all of you aren't going to do or not do. I want this man sitting right there to give me the cave he owns for its full price as property. Abraham pockets the offer of a burying place and he presses, he insists that he needs a possession, a holding for burial. And of course, he does this in the, in the worst possible shopping manner. I'll give you whatever you ask. <laughs> he negotiates away the value. He's basically saying it's of infinite value to me. I need to own the thing. Why is ownership so important to him? I think Moses wants us to ask that question here. Maybe a more important question is why is it so important for Moses and for the whole book of Genesis? 
few chapters later, when Abraham is buried, we are reminded that it is in Machpelah, in the field of Ephraim, the cave that he purchased from the Hittites. That's all spelled out for us. In Genesis 35, when Isaac is buried, we are reminded that he is buried here. In Genesis 47, when Jacob is dying, he makes Joseph promise to not bury him in a foreign land, Egypt, but to carry his bones so that he may lie with his fathers. And in Genesis 49, that is specified further, Jacob, after blessing his 12 sons, reiterates the need for him to be buried in Machpelah, the cave purchased from the Hittites, the cave we own. And in chapter 50, at the end of the book of Genesis, the trip back to Canaan for the burial of Jacob takes place. It is a, a massive royal cortege. The, the Pharaoh's servants go up. You can imagine this scene. It's like the burial of a king. And Joseph, in the closing verses of the book, foretells that his God will visit them and bring them up. And he makes them swear to take his bones back to the land of his fathers. Burial is a big deal in the book of Genesis. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament gives us some insight into all of this. After telling us that Abraham considered that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead, after referencing Genesis 22, as it were, it references this further idea of burial. It says, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. You see how those two things are joined together? He made mention of God's deliverance and his bones. From Abraham on, the patriarchs had confidently believed that God would bless them and their seed after they died. My alternate title for this sermon is Postmortem Promises. It's kind of an odd thing, isn't it? To promise someone something they'll get after they die. It assumes a lot. Hebrews says, these all, all these fathers died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. They died strangers and exiles on the earth. Abraham, I am a stranger and an exile. Sell me a plot of land. As it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Remember, as Moses is writing this for the Israelites, they're in the wilderness. They're not yet in the land. And he is doing his best. They might, you know, be squabbling. They did a little bit of that in the wilderness. Let's settle here. Let's settle there. Let's go this way. Let's go that not that land, it's too big, too scary. God can't give us to that. And Moses is keeping their focus on the land. No, we are going back there. Joseph made us promise that we would go back there. And so Sarah and Abraham have to have their own grave as a possession. Partly, yes, to express uh, their separation from the Hittites, right? They're not just commingled with the people of the land. But more importantly, because Abraham is confident that these bones, Sarah's bones, his own bones, will rise again. And when they do, they will come into full possession of the promises. So Abraham owns Sarah's burial place. In the fullest sense of that word, he owns her grave. He's confident in it, in the face of it. He owns it as a place of blessing. 
God's going to bless me even in that pit. And death in the ancient world, of course, was a grave and frightful curse. Transitioning to the second point, which is not as clear as the first point in my sermon, admittedly. What, what is key here is, is that Abraham will not be buried like or among the Hittites. And having directed his request to a particular Hittite, Ephron of Zohar, we now see that the Hittites are true to their word. They're not going to back off from their problem. Remember they said, they're, maybe they're just being kind, but they said, no man will deny you. And so Abraham said, okay, well, this man. But what does Ephron say? He seems generous in the extreme. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field. I give you the cave that's in it. I give it to you in the sight of these people. It's official. Bury your dead. Now, there's a lot of detail here. Maybe Ephron is throwing in the field because he wants to ask for more money. Maybe he's throwing in the field uh, because uh, in the ancient world, sometimes in Hittite law, apparently, um, if you inherited a man's property, you also owned or could inherit uh, some of their duties, their responsibilities as to rule and, and govern that property. But notice that Ephron still technically doesn't agree to sell the property. It's a little bit ambiguous here. He's giving it to Abraham just to bury it. Remember back in chapter 14 when Abraham went to war and the king of Sodom came out and said, you take all the property, I'll just take my people back. And, and Abraham said, I swore to God most high that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you say I have made Abraham rich. Abram will not receive anything as a gift from the Canaanites. You see, there's a difference here. If Ephron gives this property to Abraham and doesn't sell it to him, Abraham's in his debt. Abraham becomes a vassal. He serves him. There's this use of this word, you, you hear me in this dialogue. It's sort of like, listen now or hear this, understand. I'm giving you the price of the field. Take it. Abraham insists on paying full price. He insists on ownership. He will not bury his dead in Ephron's cave. He will only bury Sarah in his own cave, in her own cave, in a cave of possession. A cave, not only that he owns, but that his offspring, that his children can inherit. Because you see, ownership and possession means that you can bestow something on someone. Sarah's bones will be buried, as it were, in the hope of their resurrection glory. They will be buried to be raised in the land of possession, despite the fact that she died without that promise. She died as a foreigner and stranger. And so Ephron, now put on the spot, names the price. My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What's that between you and me? And this is just a way of politely saying, you want a price? Here's the price. Now, it's difficult to value 400 shekels of silver in the ancient world, but many commentators say, doubtless, this is a massive kingly sum. Some even speculate that, that maybe Ephron doesn't want to sell the property still, and so he's naming such a high price that Abraham's not going to be able to pay it. We can compare to some other purchases. David buys the threshing floor of Aruna that will become the place of the temple. He buys that and he gets the oxen to boot for 50 shekels. So one-eighth as much 
a good 800, number five, six, 800 years later. Jeremiah buys a field of Anatoth in chapter 32 of Jeremiah for 17 shekels. An entire hill, an entire city was bought for two talents of silver, uh, probably 5,000 shekels, again, like 1,000 years later. Bottom line, the reader is to understand that this is a massive kingly sum. Abraham's getting taken to the cleaners, but he's committed. Twice he has agreed to give the full price, and he will pay whatever it costs. He measures out the silver. Again, the text gives us lots of detail here. Even as God had said that Abram's offspring would be afflicted for 400 years as sojourners in a land not their own, so Abraham is burdened with the cost of 400 shekels. Doesn't transform, but rather confirms his status as a sojourner and foreigner in a land. Abraham's purchase was an acknowledgement that Sarah and soon he died in faith, died without what they were promised. Not having received the things that were promised, but having seen them from afar. God had promised to give him the land after 400 years. And it's like he just signed a 400-year mortgage. <laughs> I'll pay a shekel a year. This is testimony. He's bearing witness as a sort of first fruit that he will receive the whole land as promised. Sarah's bones and his and Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Leah would rest safe and secure awaiting the day when their offspring would come out of Egypt, out of slavery, with great possessions, ownership, and come and finally possess the land. We don't have time to go this direction, but it's, it's fascinating. And there are debates about whether ancient Israelites thought of the resurrection or had hope in the resurrection? I think the New Testament tells us they did. But for those that study the Old Testament just on its own sake and don't think of it as an inspired text, they often say that they don't have any hope of the resurrection or the afterlife. But think of Egypt, where they came from. <laughs> Practically everything we know about Egypt, pyramids, mummies, is for the afterlife. And think of how radically different and there's an argument that this is actually a, a, a polemical argument against ancestor worship and against what Egypt did with their dead. This isn't a massive memorial. Abraham wants a cave so she can be buried twice out of my sight. Not to worship her, not to honor her, not to build a, a monument to myself, but to hide away this promise. And this brings us to our third and final point where I want to sort of step back a little bit and think about this theme in the book of Genesis. Genesis closes with sustained attention on the burial and the bones of the patriarchs, as we've already mentioned. And finally, with Joseph's words, Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now, these dying words of Joseph are quoted by Moses in Exodus 13, where we read, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. 
It's like a rallying cry. As Moses is writing this story about, Abra, about Sarah's burial, he has the box of bones next to him. And he's rallying the people of the Exodus, saying, your greatest hero in the land of Egypt, Joseph, this great Egyptian prince and ruler or most prominent Israelite ever, made you swear. He made a vow. He made you take a vow. Now, when his bones are buried, Joseph's, in Joshua 24, we read that they were buried in Shechem. They weren't buried in this tomb. Well, now every tribe had their possession. And so he is buried in the land of Ephraim and Manasseh. As Hebrews tells us in the New Testament, these dying words of Joseph are words of faith. He was confident that God would save, what God would visit, God would deliver his people. And that made a difference to his bones. He felt it in his bones. It's like Job saying, I know that my Redeemer lives and I will see him with these eyes. He was confident that Abraham's offspring would return and possess the land. The closing paragraph of our text, like I said, reads as a deed, technical language, legal language. The land is made over to Abraham as a possession in the land of Canaan. Now, yes, it's owned but it's not given by the Lord. Abraham had to buy it. Remember, the promise is that it would be given to him. In other words, while Abraham does come to possess a postage stamp of land in Canaan, this very purchase and the mechanism by which it comes to pass is accomplished through an act of submission, a confession that he has not received any of the promises yet. It is an acknowledgement that he died without possessing what was promised. This is the climax of the land portion of God's covenant dealings with Abraham, as it were, even as Genesis 22 was the climax of the seed. There was always two promises. You will have offspring and you will have a land. But Abraham confessed and acknowledged, finally, after a life of wandering, that the homeland he was seeking was better than any homeland that could be found this side of his grave. Abraham purchased this grave because he realized that through the grave there awaited a better country, a heavenly one. Yes, his descendants would possess this very piece of land as the land of promise. But the promise, again, was not the country God promised. It was a type and shadow of that reality. That's what Hebrews tells us about this text. Joshua could gain them entry to the land, right? But Joshua couldn't give them the rest. Joshua couldn't give them the Sabbath rest that the greater Joshua, Jesus, would attain for them. So the lesson for us, the application, brothers and sisters, as we, each and every one of us, I look out on very many young people, some babes, literally, some not yet born, some older folks. As we approach the grave, each one of us from our own place, consider Abraham and Sarah, consider their faith, we too must own our graves as a place of blessing. We must claim the post-mortem promises that God has given us. We were not created for death, but for life. And so we grieve death. We mourn and weep with Abraham. And yet as sinners united to Christ, we own the grave. It has no terror for us. Our death should not frighten us. For beyond there is rest and a home. God is not ashamed to be called our God, 
Hebrews says, for he has prepared for us a city with foundations, an unshakable city, a heavenly Jerusalem. And Jesus has purchased our graves. He has purified them. They are no longer an entry to the underworld, but they are the doorstep, the gateway to heaven and resurrection life. May we too prepare ourselves and pray that we may die in faith, confident that our inheritance awaits us, that God has prepared for us a city in which there is a mansion and a room made ready for us. Let us pray. Merciful God, the grave is a terrifying prospect. And your promise is mighty and powerful to transform such an enemy, such a foe. But you have. You have crushed the serpent's head. You have defeated death, the last enemy. And your victory is ours by faith alone. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us to live in the light of this new creation which you have already begun in us. We pray that you would give us peace in the various trials and afflictions of life. We pray that we would rejoice in them knowing that you are making us ready for glory. And we pray, dear Lord, for the comfort and peace of the gospel that would be sealed to our hearts through your word and through this sacrament, the body and blood of our Savior Christ Jesus. Amen.